Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Kurt, great to see you and excited to be chatting with our guest today. Back at you, Rich. Today, we're very excited to be joined by a good friend, Peter Martin, and the author of a fascinating new book that will be coming out early next year. It's called China's Civilian Army, The Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. It is the product of a major three-year research undertaking that charts China's transformation into a global superpower from the perspective of Chinese diplomats. Yeah, we're really looking forward to the release of the book and the discussion today. Peter is an expert on Chinese diplomacy and defense issues in the Indo-Pacific. He currently works as a reporter for Bloomberg News. Peter, we're really excited to have you on Tea Leaves today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. So, Peter, just start off. So, Rich and I are are hunkered down, bunkered down here in Washington, D.C. Where are you right now? Well, I think that I'm the only Pentagon correspondent in rural West Berkshire. Um, and therefore, I... The threat, the threat is mounting. It really is yeah, mounting here. Well, you know, therefore, I claim to be also the best. Um, yeah. so I, I'm, I'm in kind of a visa limbo at the moment, but eventually I'll be moving to DC to cover military and security issues there. So tell us a little bit, like, what do you see out of your window? Where, where are you, like, what's, are you in a typical British sort of, uh, you know, rural village? What's it like? I'm in a very small town called Hungerford. It's like an hour's drive south of Oxford. It's the town I grew up in. People are really lovely. Most people move away when they sort of develop professional careers. And, uh, you know, so I had like a very nice person come up to my mom and say she'd seen me around the town and there's like a job going at the local bakery and would I be interested, which was really generous. You know, I, I had to sort of convey that I, I am gainfully employed. But uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's <laughs> but different just, to DC. Peter, just. Okay. <laughs> right, All right, exactly. So- so, you know, you put in your title of your new book, this concept of wolf warrior diplomacy. And I think most of our listeners are going to be familiar with that that concept. But Peter, tell us a little bit about its derivation, uh, a little bit about how you're using it. And I, I'm particularly interested in whether this is a generational issue. I, I'm struck by some of the senior Chinese diplomats that I interact with that, you know, there, I can sense a, just a subtle discomfort where the younger guys kind of have embraced it in a, in a, you know, kind of a nationalist zeal. So sort of those two questions to start, Peter, thank you. Yeah, of course. So the, the term um, was barely in use actually when I started writing the book or I started researching it in early 2017. Um, and that year, this movie came out called Wolf Warrior 2 which was kind of about an activist Chinese military officer who was going to help Chinese citizens stranded overseas and was going to take, he took a very assertive approach to protecting the motherland. And that, that kind of unabashed nationalism came to be used to describe the way that Chinese diplomats have started behaving in, in recent years. Peter, just quickly on that movie. So just for those who haven't seen it. So, it, you know, it's it takes place in the Horn of Africa. The bad guys are American mercenaries, uh, you know, evil, you know, kind of allied with bad groups in Africa. And the, the Chinese captain is really a, you know, strong, purposeful. You can kind of tell that, that you know, he, he exemplifies a China that has hung back 
but now it's it, it we can't take anymore we've got to step forward and assume our role and responsibilities and so he kind of personifies that but what was striking to me peter when i saw it i, I didn't expect it to the to be the biggest box office hit of any movie in history didn't seem like you know when people were doing wolf warrior 2 they were thinking this is going to be it but they they clearly found something at a, at a moment and, and tapped into something in the Chinese uh, uh, subconscious. It feels also to me a little bit like the producers uh, and the marketers of the film were caught off guard initially by it. What, what's your sense? I think that's really interesting. The my, my sense is that over the last five years or so, Chinese nationalism, which we used to read about as these kind of online trolls who were pushing the government to go further or is the, the Global Times writing things that were a little bit out there and a little controversial and didn't necessarily chime with Beijing's foreign policy. Suddenly that's under Xi Jinping, that's front and center um, and it's mainstream. And that, that connected with audiences uh, on a very wide scale. And it, you know, it also works from a propaganda standpoint for Beijing. Peter, can I ask you about the term and how the Chinese actually view it when you use wolf warrior diplomacy? Is this, are they proud of this term or are they reluctant to um, be referred to in that way? The, the foreign ministry really dislikes the term. They, they feel like it's, it's unfair and that it portrays the sense of kind of aggression, whereas the way that they see uh, their actions, this is them kind of defending China's interests in a world where they're under attack and victimized. So they don't, they don't like it at all. Well, who, who, so we got the movie and we've got the foreign ministry that doesn't like it. So how did it come to be? Who coined it? That's a good question. I don't know the answer. Um, I, I want to guess that it was some of my fellow Beijing correspondents. Um, I know Bill Bishop from the Sinicism newsletter used the term a lot. I don't know who coined it though. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think it was coined in a newsletter and then picked up by the Financial Times. And it's been, you know, sort of taken off from there. But we'll ask our listeners to be in touch if they know specifically. I also know that people are are, are not claiming it either, I think, for fear that it means <laughs> right. you know, no visas and stuff. But so there are a few key players, Peter, that are, are associated with that term. A couple of diplomats in Europe in particular, clearly the spokesman of the foreign ministry. And I, I guess I'd ask you just generally, has there been pushback against this new cadre of nationalists? Do you sense that this is a debate? You know, do these guys have free reign? M many of them are on the junior side and they're not in the elite divisions of the foreign ministry. So help us understand, you know, how this, you know, sharpened diplomacy, how is it faring within the halls of the bureaucracy? Yeah, um, so I think there absolutely is debate. I think most of the debate is over tactics. There's like a, there's a widespread recognition that Chinese diplomacy couldn't remain the same, uh, couldn't continue to be low key in the way it was in the 90s or the 2000s, and something had to change. But exactly how it should change and how assertive China should become is, is quite contentious. And, you know, in the, in the book, I go all the way back to 1949 and kind of trace the roots of, of uh, the Chinese diplomatic corps. And the thing that's really striking, I think, is that China's 
had wolf warriors as long as the PRC has had diplomats. There were there were deeply assertive impassioned speeches at the UN in 1950 when a Chinese delegation traveled there, um, you know, famously during the Cultural Revolution to the point where there were Chinese diplomats wielding axes, literally wielding axes on the streets of London and dressing down foreign counterparts. And as, as you know, at the same time, there have also been these periods of incredibly impressive diplomacy where China has, um, has made great strides in its international reputation. Its diplomats have contributed a lot to that. So, you know, in the early days, the kind of the Geneva Conference, the Bandong Conference, and that whole kind of Zhou and Lai charm offensive. And then some of the diplomats that you both interacted with during the 90s and the 2000s in the lead up to the Olympics. And so this has kind of ebbed and flowed in the history of Chinese diplomacy. And I kind of see today's wolf warriors as embodying one tradition that's been there from the beginning. And then I think there's also this kind of Zhou and Lai, much more subdued and low key tradition um, that kind of coexists with it. And people like Tsui and Kai, as you say, embody that that alternate route. That's so interesting, Peter. So I would have thought, that's why we're so excited to see your book when it comes out and really help us understand. I, I would have thought that this new, I, I realized there was a previous group of diplomats that, you know, were often, you know, sequestered in their various compounds, you know, when they were more activist in the 60s and 70s. I, I would have thought, though, that this new version of Wolf War diplomacy was more a reflection of China's gaining power and its sense of aggrievement and, and less part of a historical cycle. So that's really interesting from your perspective. So your sense is that this is, in many respects, part of a, of a trend, or that this reflects a historical back and forth in which you've seen these trends in the past. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. I mean, I think certainly the, the current wave of things is, is deeply tied to China's perceptions of its own power and especially to its perception of Western and American decline. But China's had perceptions like that at other points in its history. You know, in the Cultural Revolution, it famously asserted that, you know, Beijing was the center of the global proletarian movement. But I, for me, the most important variable is how domestic politics shift and how individual Chinese diplomats think about their career paths and how they think about their, frankly, their personal safety in a system that can be quite scary. And if you see from the top instructions that say China needs to assert itself more clearly, China can't be bullied, China needs to take up the mantle and seize its rightful place in the world, that's the safe option. You know, that's the thing you want to pursue. You don't want to be caught looking weak or looking like you're capitulating to foreigners. Hey, Peter, given your, um, your kind of deep study of the Chinese diplomatic corps, I wonder if you could just help our listeners understand kind of the size and scale and, and scope of, of China's uh, diplomatic, as you say, the, the civilian army. Because there's a lot of hand-wringing in Washington about budget cuts 
to the State Department and to USAID and how we're falling behind while China is ramping up and increasing its reach diplomatically. Is that an accurate assessment? Are they getting bigger? Are they kind of doing you know, far more, especially in the Indo-Pacific, than in years past? Yes. So they have about, I, I believe it's about 6,000 equivalents of U.S. Foreign Service officers now. So it's substantially smaller than the State Department, but it's, it's bigger than at any point in China's history. Uh, the country's significantly increased its spending on diplomacy and has identified it correctly as an area where Beijing needs to be able to compete with Washington. Uh, as the Lowy Institute showed recently, uh, Beijing's diplomatic footprint as well, the number of embassies and consulates, is now greater than that of um, of the United States, and so it's um, it's certainly something they're prioritizing. Yeah, Peter, let me ask you. So we were always struck, you know, when when we did diplomacy with Chinese interlocutors, that it felt on a number of occasions that that the the Chinese foreign minister was a relatively weak bureaucratic institutional player, you know. And then when you say that at in the United States. Then people in, in, invariably say, takes one to know one, you know, sort of, you know. <laughs> but, you know, we got the sense sometimes that they, you know, that their primarily job was kind of handling, but not, you know, formulating and implement, you know, formulating strategy. And it wasn't clear how bureaucratically um, significant they were. Felt like the PLA was more powerful and a lot of party mechanisms around the general secretary and the president were more influential. What's your take on that? Have they gained an influence, receded? What's your view over time? I think that the foreign ministry is probably in a slightly stronger position, or the the you know, professional diplomats are in a slightly stronger position now than they were at the end of the Hu Jintao era, now that Yang Jiechi is on the Politburo. But, you know, this is, this is kind of fiddling around the edges. The, the key point is that right from the outset in 49, Joe and Lai and everyone involved in building out the diplomatic corps was clear that the, the, the diplomats were going to follow the, the instructions laid down by the party and were going to be absolutely loyal to the party. And that's, that's actually where this phrase China's civilian army comes from. You know, in, in 49, when China had no diplomats. It kicked out all of the KMT people who were still in Beijing and started from scratch with basically a bunch of peasant revolutionary farmers and uh, PLA veterans. And it's Joe, Joe and I said to these guys, look, you don't know how to do diplomacy, but you know how to fight. And so you need to think of yourselves as the PLA civilian clothing. And on one hand, there's a kind of fighting spirit and a discipline that goes with that. And on the other, uh, as anyone who studies the Chinese military knows, you know, Mao Zedong said, political power flows from the barrel of a gun and the party controls the gun. And so the idea of being a civilian army really has at its core loyalty to the party. And so they, they've kind of always had this subordinate role. But I just want to add one thing, which is that although the role is subordinate, they play a weirdly outsized role representing China to the world. You know, when you think of the way that the United States represents itself to the outside, you've famously got blue jeans and Hollywood and you've got U.S. business leaders. China struggles to communicate its message on those levels. And a lot of the time, uh, its leaders also don't 
talking much more than platitudes about important issues. And so you're kind of left with like the foreign ministry spokesperson being the definitive voice of China on, on this or that crucial issue. Peter, we're in a kind of entering this very difficult phase of US-China relations. And we've been on that path now for many years and, and we're certainly reaching a critical boiling point. Is this playing into the kind of those who are arguing this is exactly why China needs its wolf warriors because of the kind of belligerent U.S. and the, and the West? I mean, just give us a sense of how not only the U.S.-China tensions, but European-China tensions, how is this playing out in uh, the foreign ministry? Are they prepared are they handling it the way the party expects them to handle it? I mean, there's a lot of really complicated and, and really kind of tension-filled uh, months ahead, as, as I see it. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think there is real reflection on the part of some people in the foreign ministry about uh, the tactics that are being used. And there's a, you know, these, as you guys know better than me, you spent hours and hours in the room with some Chinese diplomats. They're sophisticated, they're cosmopolitan, they understand that these tactics are going down badly, but they've been told that they need to be tough and they need to stand up for China's interests. They're also in a really, really tough position if you think about some of the policies that they need to defend. Like, you know, anyone who spent time as a US hand knows that there's no way to sell China's policies in Xinjiang to a a US audience. There's, There's no clever way to phrase China's policy of, you know, using re-education camps in a way that's going to be persuasive, but they have to do it and they have to defend it. So as much reflection as there is, unless there are policy changes, I think it's going to be hard for them to get away from this kind of reflexive assertiveness. Yeah, those policy changes are not on the horizon anytime soon. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, can I can I also ask you about Belt and Road and and how do we think about it? We we think about it, you know, and talk about it in the West as if it is a element of Chinese diplomacy, but others say, look, this is you know these are investment and infrastructure opportunities, but clearly it seems to be a coordinated you know, I would say diplomatic strategy as well. Is that what you found in the course of your research? Yeah, I mean, I think that there, you know, there are clearly a lot of problems in the way that it's been rolled out and the perception that there's kind of debt trap diplomacy going on and that there are strings attached to loans. And there's, there's a lot to those criticisms. But there's, there's also quite an important insight. If you go back to, to some of the writing early on as the project was launched, this is about China seeing a very crowded strategic space in the South China Sea and East Asia and thinking that there was a real opportunity for it to pivot west and to deepen ties uh, with Central Asia and, uh, and South Asia. And there was, and, and, and correctly identifying the needs for infrastructure spending. And so there, there, there was an insight there which had a great deal of potential. I'm not sure how much goodwill it's actually won Beijing in practice. Peter, I, I want to get a sense from you about, about not just the specific issues along the lines that I think Rich helpfully asked about, about some of these things. But, but what's interesting that I always felt about Chinese diplomacy is that they had 
some tells, if you some you know historic practices that you would see repeated. One of them was really never to take on more than one challenge at a time, and they would often secure flanks. I remember when the focus in the '90s started to turn towards the 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 ocean waterways, the you know the the lines of communication, sea lines of communication. China embarked on a really ambitious set of initiatives to basically settle or at least put on hold many of their territorial disputes with India, with the Russia, you know, all the stands. And it was, you know, extremely bold and, and quite effective, at least at that time. What, what we've seen more recently, it feels, is attacking on many fronts. So I agree with you about it's very hard to you know, take on and explain the Uyghur situation in many international fora. But what is sometimes very difficult to really understand is that you will see simultaneously the Chinese prosecuting Hong Kong, the India border, as Rich was suggesting, you know, European criticism, Australia, all simultaneously, which seems to run against one of the key mantras of Chinese diplomacy, which is you know, don't attack on all fronts at once. How, how do you understand that more generally? Uh, I think that's exactly right. And I think during the periods when China has been most successful diplomatically, it's pursued a narrow set of goals with great discipline. And, you know, and at those times, China had exactly the same handicaps in terms of tight political restrictions on its diplomats and problems with selling the nature of the regime to the outside world, but it just managed them and it focused on a few small things and was very, very successful. The period immediately after Tiananmen, I think is probably the best example of that. There have been other periods like in the Cultural Revolution where Chinese diplomacy just seemed to go and fire on all cylinders in every direction. We've, we've seen something a little bit like that recently I don't think it's primarily a set of strategic considerations that are driving that behavior. I think it is a set of political decisions made by senior Chinese diplomats where they need to be seen as tough and assertive and standing up for China. Um, and they think that Xi Jinping and the rest of the top leadership want and expect that from them. And so they do it. I, I don't I don't think that there are very many people in the foreign policy apparatus who think, yeah, this is the right way to win friends and influence people. Peter, I, just, I do want to ask just just generally. Do, so you talked about at the outset and it's something that Rich and I, a lot of our discussions sort of swirl around this concept or this this view or this worry for us. So I, I don't know any country that spends more time among its analysts, strategic elite, and academics discussing, debating, look at, at looking at the factors that might be, you know, kind of in a cumulative form being referred to as the correlation of forces, right? Uh -huh. Whether the country is is going up or going down. And, and the Chinese on many occasions have almost willed the United States to be in decline. We, you know, and, and have really resisted, you know, period in which the United States uh, appeared powerful and would say, no, no, multipolarity is the, is the key feature of international politics. 
it seems right now that much of Chinese analysis is almost gleeful in its assessment of how America is doing in internationally and the like. How much do you think that perception of American decline, or at least lack of performance, animates what Chinese interlocutors are doing? I, and that is the other thing, I just quickly, like a lot of people who don't really focus on China will say, oh, China's this long-term plan and blah, blah, blah. They don't really understand that I've never worked with a country that's more impatient than China. They are much right. more likely take steps at that, that, that are overreach and then have to reposition themselves. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, so on the, on the U.S. PowerPoint, I think that, uh, you know, as friends of uh, the Asia group, Rush Soshi wrote very well in Foreign Policy magazine recently, that there is a lot of discussion about the weaknesses of American power in Chinese strategic circles at the moment. And I think that that's very important. I think that there's also a lot of reflection going on about the strengths of the Chinese system. Xi Jinping has said it uh, out loud on a number of occasions recently about the obvious advantages of the Chinese system. And I think that, you know, what he's getting at there is, you know, they had this sense that they needed to learn from the world that was challenged after the financial crisis and it's been challenged much more extremely now by the West response to the coronavirus. And there's this sense of kind of Western and especially American decadence and decline. What I will say is that Chinese diplomacy tends not to perform very well when the country overestimates its own position and underestimates that of the United States. The other thing is that there are detractors from that view, but I think a lot of them are kind of pragmatically staying quieter at the moment. You know, some people, Yuan Nansheng, thinker on Chinese diplomacy and former diplomat, has spoken out about how he thinks that view is wrong-headed, but, uh, but most people are kind of keeping their head down. The short-termist point, I think, is really crucial. I see, yeah, and don't get me wrong, there are people like Zhou Enlai who have wonderful, who had incredible strategic minds and were able to think in a very, very long-term way. But a lot of the time, Chinese diplomacy is intensely tactical and short-termist. Uh, I think that's something that, that people really don't appreciate until they sort of dig beneath the surface a little bit. So Peter, I want to go, go back to the book itself. And, and um, in, in the course of your research, you said you conducted tens of dozens of interviews just wondering, you know, how did that how did that go? Who were the interviews with? Can you just tell us a little bit about that process? Yeah. Uh, so the, the 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 most important source base of the book was this set of memoirs that I used of retired Chinese diplomats. So there were more than a hundred of those. I kind of knew that there were some out there because I'd seen them in footnotes. But when I started using Baidu to, you know, do repeated keyword searches, I realized that there were just hundreds of these things. Wow. So I, I kind of mined, I mined those and then did a lot of structured interviews with uh, long-term interlocutors for Chinese diplomats in various countries around the world and had much more casual conversations with Chinese friends and thinkers, which, you know, needed to be a little bit more ad hoc and, 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 and low key. But for me, the, the key insights about how it feels to be part of this system really came from those memoirs. That's amazing. So just looking forward then, as, as you look out onto the horizon, you know, as, as you 
based on your interviews, based on your research, you know, what is the foreign ministry? You know, if you, if you were to say the top, both concerns and top opportunities, uh, what are, what are they most focused on in, in the coming term? I think that the biggest cause of stress at the moment is the perception that the communist party is under attack from the United States. If you look at the language they use to describe Secretary Pompeo, it's almost without parallel. They don't talk about any other foreign minister or any other senior international state person in the same way that they talk about Secretary Pompeo. And I think the reason for that is his repeated criticism of the Communist Party and his statements about the illegitimacy of its rule, which is something very different to criticizing Chinese trade policies and, you know, or or other, you know, it's industrial policies or other limited sort of um, technical policy areas. I think they're very, very concerned about that kind of language. I think something that is on the immediate, you know, the potential immediate horizon for them is the reassertion of US alliances, which deeply worrying to the Chinese. If you talk to people in Beijing, they, they correctly identify that as a crucial source of American power, and they, they fear its reemergence. Wow, that fascinating. Because we, you know, we talk about the importance of American alliances as almost if it's a talking point, but your observation is, is really important. I know it's tough to roll out a book in this environment, but tell okay. us about your book schedule. How do people get the book? And, you know, what, what does that look like? Yeah, so the ebook is going to come out on March 1st, and you'll be able to get it from Amazon and other other outlets. And then on April 1st, the hard copy will come out in the US. So I encourage you guys to buy early and buy often. Right. <laughs> and, and Peter, we do hope that you'll also, at Bloomberg or some other publications, spin out some of the articles and other things from this. So, so just, I'm going to, we're going to conclude, but here's your last question from Rich and I. Mm. So is this a trend that's going to continue? Or is it going to, you know, you've talked about this sort of sine wave-like curve over history. Is this going to fade a bit? Is it going to mellow? Or do you feel that this trend is going to intensify in the years ahead? Or does it depend on what happens in the United States and surrounding region? So I think in the short term, we're probably going to see a doubling down on this kind of assertive approach. There's very little sign from Xi Jinping or the rest of the top leadership that, that they want to change things. But I would just be mindful in the medium and longer term that China has recalibrated its foreign policy really successfully um, and really quite dramatically in the past. And, you know, that may be closer than some of us think. That's fascinating, Peter. Frankly, this just gives us an appetite for the book coming out. I wish it was coming out sooner, but it'll. we'll just look forward to it all the more. So thank you. Great insights. Thank you so much for joining us today, Peter. Remember, the book is available online in March and then in print in April. Uh, we'll plug it when we get a little bit closer, and we really appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you today. Me too. Thank you. Yeah, Peter, thanks so much. Uh, looking forward to the book, and thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to find and rate us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next time. Bye.